This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Stuart Kelly, I'm a writer and critic, and it's an immense privilege and pleasure to be here with John Burnside. Um, you don't need me to sort of rattle through John's achievements, as well as being one of the most lyrical and one of the most political writers working at the moment. He is perhaps, almost certainly, the most industrious. We're going to be talking about two collections today, his latest novel, Ashland and Vine, which to my mind marks a real departure in Jean's oeuvre. He's done ten collections of novels and short stories, and his 14th collection of poetry, Still Life with Feeding Snake. Uh, with Feeding Snake. Again, it's an astonishing collection, and I think, again, shows some kind of change from the previous collections, and we'll talk about these differences in the course of the event. Um, John's going to begin by reading from Ashland and Vine. We'll have a bit of a chat about that, then we'll have a few poems and a chat about that, and then you'll join in the conversation. Please welcome John Burnside. I forgot to prime him before we came on, not to mention that I'm prolific. People always say, the only thing he's ever said about me is, oh, he's so prolific. So I'm not going to be prolific anymore. Um, I'm going to start thinking about it before I write no. <laughs> and John Ashby's got, I've got, I just bought the, the first volume of the John Ashby collected poems, and it's like this, it's like, you know, a door slab. And nobody goes around saying, oh, John Ashbury is so prolific. I think I have. I to oh, you have? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just because he's better. That's probably what it is. Um, I, I'm not going to... I'll say one thing about this book, which, uh, which I think um, I want to say because it's important to me, but I'm not sure it matters to anybody else. The original plan for this book, which it, it would have been about that thick, and... Um, um, I, had a, I was busy with lots of other things, and that was one thing, family stuff and various things. And also, it seemed wrong somehow to have a book that thick. Um, it's actually a bit of a, a, an imposition asking anybody to read a book that thick, to be honest. Um, but the idea, the original idea of it was that there would be a lot more of the history of American left and anarchist politics in the book but then um, I changed my mind about that and just had a few markers. And I hope that we will send people out to read the history of American uh, of left-wing politics and, and radical politics. And there's a couple of notes at the end, especially for one particular book, that um, I think is well worth reading. Um, but then I, I kind of look at the books that have come out since this book came out this year, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh yeah, they're, out, they're all about twice as thick. And they've got less history in them than this has. But um, I'm not a historian, I'm a novelist. So I, I cut it back with that. And this chapter begins, it's called, the chapter title is Gregory Peck. The narrator's a young woman who's basically a heavy drinker. Not an alcoholic, as one critic wrote, but a heavy drinker. And um, um, an also drug user who's trying to get clean. Loritz, her boyfriend, is probably the main culprit in her life of just about everything, which I find is true of many boyfriends. When I got back to the apartment, I found Loritz draped over a chair watching TV 
a row of bottles from his favorite microbrewery lined up on the floor beside him. On screen, Gregory Peck was staring inscrutably at some distant object, the classic Peck gaze. And I knew the movie, but I couldn't remember what it was. Not that it mattered. I wasn't in the mood for film talk, and even though I hadn't agreed to join, agreed to Gene Culver's strange sobriety deal, I didn't want to have a drink, not even a beer. I wanted to shower, then lie down in my own bed. Lawrence rented the apartment from a friend, and technically I wasn't a tenant, I was just his living girlfriend, but we had our own rooms and mostly we slept alone in them. My room was small, narrow, very white, and almost perfect. The kind of room a nun would inhabit. Not a Christian nun, maybe, but someone from another denomination. A Buddhist nun, say, if there are such people. They had Buddhist monks, so I guess they would have Buddhist nuns too. Not that the domination mattered. It was just, I didn't want a cross or a Bible or anything like that. Just the white walls and the comforting narrowness. Like I was only taking up the exact amount of space I needed to sleep and wake up and get dressed in. Lawrence had the one large room in the apartment, but it was darker and more elaborate, with old, maybe antique and certainly meaningful provincial furniture. Most of it from his friend's store, Blue Barn Antiques, all passionate and local provenance and character. When we had sex, we did it in Lawrence's room. It was a kind of unspoken agreement, which for me had something to do with keeping my little nun's cell intact, though I have no idea what it meant to Lawrence. I think he thought the atmosphere was more appropriate. His room had narrative. That was one of his words, narrative, meaning not that there was a story to something so much as that whether it was a place or a person or a situation, it was something that lent itself to the possibility of a story, of story itself, which is more than things just happening. Lawrence had a whole heap of theories about narrative. One time he explained at length to a group of SIU students we met in a pizza place in Scarsville how the real tragedy of American life back in the 60s hadn't been that the president was shot, but that he was shot in Dallas, Texas, a place that for Lawrence had almost no narrative value whatsoever. If the assassination had happened in Washington or New York or even St. Louis for that matter, everything would have been different. But Dallas? What was Dallas? A grassy knoll, a book depository, no history, no precedent, no provenance. Lawrence was obsessed with stuff like this, American narratives, American history, which was never quite history as real historians understood it, the way, say, European or Japanese history was history. That was why Americans confused history with the movies so easily, he said, because the history they had ended up with was so much less interesting than the stories any committee of scriptwriters could concoct during a single afternoon at the office. Lawrence claimed to have met people who didn't know that the Kennedy assassination was a real event. They thought it was part of a movie. One guy he met had even asked him who had played JFK in the film, not the remake, but the original. <laughs> True. 
can we start, John, with that idea about American narrative and oh, the lack God, yeah. of political narrative? I mean, in a way, Ashland and Vine seems a terribly prescient novel in that mm. you're going through this countercultural history of resistance <coughs> and then come November, we suddenly get a president who seems to think that you know, the whole of the country is to be managed like a bad game show. Um, tell us a bit about the sort of importance of that countercultural part of American politics. Well, um, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's prescient, actually. I, I think we've all seen this coming for a long time, haven't we? Haven't we? Yeah. Can't see anybody. <laughs> yeah? We've all seen this coming for a long, long time. Um, while I was working on this book, I was like, oh, that's nice. I can see people now. Um, I feel. <laughs> um, no, I, I was working at the same time on a book on Henry Miller, which will be coming out next year. I, I am prolific, sorry. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about was Henry Miller's great book from the 40s, um, Air Conditioned Nightmare, in many ways predicted, the, you know, in some kind of spiritual way, if you like, predicted where we are now in America. Or, or, and of course, when I say in America, I mean the rest of the world, because we're still, anyway, part of that economy, if you like. Um, but we can see it coming for a long time. But what, what I really found um, difficult was the, the, the success that the American establishment, and across the world really, had in erasing whole parts of the history, whole, whole segments of the history of American life, American politics, American resistance, had been erased. Now, in fact, we, 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 you've always seen those things in YouTube, my kids watch them all the time, where a guy walks around the street asking people like, you know, who was Thomas Jefferson? And they say, was he the lead singer in The Doors? You know, that kind of thing. I may not even remember the doors for that matter. But, you know, um, Americans have lost, um, a lot of Americans have lost a sense of history that is so valuable to have that, you know, we need a sense of history. And of course, by, by extension, the rest of us have lost it too, because we all do what America does, catching a cold and sneezing and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I wanted to, I actually originally wanted to write a book which was a lot of memories of resistance in America since the 50s, uh, since the Korean War but with memories of people there going back to earlier. And there are some very good books on, on, on American um, radical politics and left politics. Um, Howard Zinn, for example, wonderful, um, a great, great entry into American history is to read um, Howard Zinn's History of American People. And Howard Zinn's great essay, The Bomb. If you don't read anything else this year, just read The Bomb, the, the Howard Zinn essay. Because Howard Zinn was actually in a bomber in the Second World War and he was in one of the bombers that the first ever to use napalm. Now you all think, I'm sure, mostly unless you're historians of this kind of subject, I certainly did, that the first use of napalm was in Vietnam. Yeah? That's what I thought. It was first used in 1945, at the end of the Second World War. Not only that, it was used in civilian French people. So, um, and what happened was Zinn was in the convoy that went out with the napalm, and the guy who led this group said, uh, got in touch with headquarters and said, we think that the Germans have moved out of here and actually this is now a refugee center. And they said, get rid of the payload anyway. And so they, they dropped it. But more movingly, Zinn then reflects on the, um, the bombs, the, the two A-bombs. One might have been understandable in some way. I'm not sure I can still forgive it. But two were unforgivable. Literally, literally unforgivable. And yet people cheered when they dropped the bomb, you know, in, in, in America. 
Um, and, and then said, why did they drop the bomb anyway? Japan was trying to surrender in, in, in the decent terms at that point. And the, and the history is clear. The documents are there now. Japan had approached the Americans through the Russians to try and negotiate a surrender, which would pre pre preserve one detail. The emperor would not be humiliated. That's all. And um, the Americans said, no. We want to try our new toy up. So, um, you know, bits of that. But the other thing was, um, the one big thing I wanted to put in was Fred Hampton. I did a lot of research on the weather underground and the SDS groups who were against the war. And one of the reasons why so many people who had been SDS told me that they got into weather or similar groups was the assassination of Fred Hampton. And can I just do a straw poll? Does anybody here know, remember, uh, if you're old enough, remember or know who Fred Hampton was? Yeah, a few people, very few. Uh, and it'd probably be the same in the United States. Fred Hampton was a Black Panther leader. Um, he was murdered by the Chicago police and the FBI. And at that point, the, the Black Panthers and the, 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 the um, Weather Underground weren't buddies or anything, but the Weather Underground, oh, they started the Weather Underground because they just thought, well, what's the point? We're fighting, we're fighting, we're going every day, we're demonstrating. We're getting our heads beaten by the police. Nothing's happening. The war isn't ending. Black people aren't getting their civil rights. And so they became, I would say, nonviolent. They only attacked property. But of course, they became the first seriously considered um, um, domestic terrorists, supposedly. And I corresponded, I've been corresponding with a guy in prison who, who went into great detail about this. And a lot of the guys who were in Weather Underground are now respectable figures in the academic or, or, or political establishment and don't want to talk about it much or only want to do it in a certain framed way. But David Gilbert had no problem about that because he's still in prison, he would never be released. And so he told me a lot about that. And, but I just want people to know about Fred, Fred Hampton. So that stayed in the book. Just, but basically it's a, an older woman talking to a young woman saying, do you know who Fred Hampton was? This is your history. You have to know who Fred Hampton was. And this is Black Lives Matter in the yeah. 60s. Yeah. You know, and nothing's, well, some things maybe have changed. But in the end, the authorities can still shoot down a black man and, and walk away. And, um, you know, did we learn nothing? And the other thing was, I went, my, sorry, I'm going on and on. No. My son went to school and, and, and I, he doesn't go to that school anymore. They were teaching them history and they were teaching the 60s in America. And I, and I saw these papers that he brought back and I said, oh, you're doing the Black Panthers. And he said, yeah. I said, what, what have you learned about the Black Panthers? Well, they were this terrorist group. I said, no, they weren't, actually. I was about to start thumping the table and screaming. But I went to see the, the teacher at the, at the um, parents' night. And this is, this is curriculum. It's not, their, it's not the teacher's fault. But the Black Panthers weren't terrorists. They were trying to defend their neighborhood. They were trying to send children to school with a meal in their bellies so they could actually learn something. Yeah? Yeah. And, and defend people against the cops. And, and we all know why, looking at now, but in those days, those, those guys were treated as, you know, evil, murdering, drug-dealing scum, you know. It's very strange that there's been quite a few American novels recently going back to that tradition. Uh, yeah. Jonathan Lethem's Distant Gardens covers some of the same material, how there's a almost like a DNA link from these things right the way up to the Occupy movement. I'm always, struck, is, yeah. Yeah, I'm always struck by Gore Vidal made a very, very sensible comment 
when Clinton was re-elected, he said nobody re-elected Clinton on the basis of his economic policies or his foreign policies. It's because the Americans like soap opera and they didn't want this character killed off. <laughs> it was as simple as that. You, you bring that very clearly out in Ashland and Fight. I'd like to talk a bit about the differences from your previous works. I mean, the previous three novels are Glister and the Devil's Footprints um, and The Summer of Drowning. We're very gothic. They were very much analysing how people come to be damaged. Ashland and Vine, with this whole thing, I mean, there is a slight gothic element of the wise woman in the, the woods who's instructing I never saw her. that. I, I, don't, I saw it being written about in criticism. I, I just thought she was a regular person. She lives in, she lives in a house with some trees around it. She's not a wise woman. I mean, the house isn't made of gingerbread or anything. You know? I never saw that. I, I really didn't. I just thought... The, the, whenever you create a character, you have to correspond to some kind of stereotype. You know? But anyway, no, I mean, the thing which is very different about Ashland and Vine is mm. it's about recovery, it's about healing. You know, when we meet Kate at first, as you say, she isn't an alcoholic, but she's drinking heavily. Yeah. She's in a relationship which is abusive. Um, she is using drugs, and the whole process by which Jean Culver manages to heal her is interesting. I mean, it's very difficult to write about healing and forgiving and goodness. Uh, mm. The great phrase was de Montalon who said that happiness writes with white ink on white paper. <laughs> um, can you talk a bit about why you wanted to explore that kind of psychology, the psychology of redemption and cure, rather than the sort of damage that you've been vivisecting in the previous books? <laughs> um, well, I, I guess there's an element of maybe some kind of wishful thinking in that as well. Um, I, I remember when um, Fassbinder was asked why his films were so dark, always so bad about this. And he said, well, you know, he saw himself as a kind of diagnostician. The society were in his sick, and he was trying to put his finger on where it hurts, and, you know, um, maybe people would start noticing that and maybe start applying it. Well, I, I felt as though, um, what is, what is, what can heal us? One of the things is to listen to each other. And I think maybe we got to where we are now in the United States, and, and also here, is that we seem to want to refuse to listen to each other and to engage in a two-way conversation with somebody else. Yeah. You know, I notice so much I'm talking with somebody, and as soon as I mention a certain somebody like, say, left-wing politics, boom, down come the shutters. Or, or um, you know, people, I see people watching me speak to say when I'm going to stop so they can tell me how wrong I am, you know. And uh, maybe I am. I'm, I'm not convinced of anything. I'm just looking for a solution or looking for an interim way through. Um, but I think one of the big things is, you know, you saw it in Charlottesville. It was, it was tragic. I mean, I, I just sat and wept watching the TV. Um, those people just, just aren't speaking to each other or listening to each other anymore. Or they're, or they're in an echo chamber where they only hear the views of people yeah. like them. And I think we've had experience yeah. of that you know, across the referendum and the Brexit vote. And the Brexit was, Brexit was the same thing, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was in Germany when the whole Brexit thing came through, and I, you know, I couldn't believe it. And then German people walk up to me saying, did we get something wrong? There's something strange about the British system that if, if, you, know, if you have something really smart and people know it's good, they vote against it. I don't know, they were just angry and they wanted to... See, people are angry. They're angry at the corrupt governments we've got. They want to drain the swamp, they want to do this and that and the next thing. Um, but of course what they then do is they get some weird populist demagogue and fasten all their hopes onto that person. But I go back and I think of when Obama got elected the first time, 
And I was commissioned to write a piece from a, by a French paper about Margaret Thatcher. It was a, some kind of an anniversary. And I wrote about, you know, you can't blame all of our woes on one politician. But nor can we look to one politician to pin all our hopes onto them. And that was my exit one, because I, I wasn't commissioned to write about Obama. But I remember then I went to New York, and I was down in Bedford-Stuyvesant, and, which is predominantly black area where I was staying, and there was this huge long graffiti all along this alleyway that said, Obama will save us. And I just stopped and, and thought, oh my God, you know, people are really hoping, believing, hoping this. That's one man who, who somehow got to be president in spite of an incredibly corrupt and racist system. Joy Hardwell said to me that after that she was traveling in the West, um, Joy Hardwell's an American poet, um, Muskogee poet, and she was traveling in the West, she went to a store and they had this big sweepstake thing up on the wall. And she said, oh, what's that? I, you know, she was going to buy a, you know, a box. And they had all dates in it and numbers of days or whatever. And it was, they said, oh, that's when um, you, you get the right square when somebody kills a nigger. Right? This white guy behind the thing. So you were putting the money on, say, number nine, 47 days before somebody assassinates Obama. And she just looked at this guy and thought, <laughs> What kind of country am I living in? You know? So right from the first day, um, the racists were out for Obama, including your man now, who says that, that racism is abhorrent to him. Well, one thing about Ashley Devine before we go into the poetry is mm. your previous novels have been set in the far north, in a sort of variant of Fife. Obviously, because you're wanting to write about American politics in this subterranean history, I quite like the fact that Jean is called Jean Culver. It always <laughs> seemed like the, you know, she was the, the culvert with the, the stream flowing through it. Was it difficult writing about America? Or could you bring an outsider's eye to it in a different way? I hope it's an outsider's eye, because obviously I'm not an American. But um, I've spent a lot of time in the US, and, and especially in the Midwest. And uh, one of my fantasy books is I'm going to spend... 10 years just writing a book about St. Louis, my favorite city of all cities, where Chuck Berry used to live. And anyway, um, Chuck's sadly gone now. And he was still playing right to, right to the end, well, almost to the end. He was playing in his club. Anyway, that's another story. But you know, I felt as though I knew the St. Louis area well, and Illinois, um, Missouri. Um, and, 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 quite, and, I, and I've really always been interested in American politics. And I, felt, I always felt as though America had this, this dual history. There's this very strange thing, I also teach American literature, which is another thing, but there's this very strange thing, John Dos Passos' book, USA. Oh yeah, fabulous book. Well, the first volume is brilliant, the second volume is very good. The third volume is like, what's going on? What's happening? Well, the, the rabbit just jumped out of my hand, where's it gone? You know. But that first book describes in detail, unflinching detail, the kind of things that Pinkerton men and Stripe Bakers and your Carnegie's and your people like that did to, to unionize workers or union, people who went to try and organize unions. Unflinching detail. And, and I thought, how did John Dos Passos end up going out shooting with Gary Cooper? And I guess you don't know, Gary Cooper was a horribly right, um, vicious character in his, in his private life. I remember really, really upset because I've always watched, you know, Gary, Gary Cuba's movies growing up, High Noon and all that kind of stuff. And then I found out what kind of person he was in real life. I thought, how can, it's like, you know, finding out that Richard Wagner was anti-Semitic. It was just so sad. Just, why? why? 
you know, how could you be so great in one thing and so awful here? Yeah. You're going to read a poem in a minute or two, but can we talk about writing both poetry and prose? I mean, just the pragmatics and the technicalities of it. Are you writing poetry at the same time as you're writing the novels, or do you have to compartmentalise? No, I've never compartmentalised in my life. I've never been able to compartmentalise anything. Complete, my life is complete chaos. Um, I, can't, I can't compartmentalise my writing and my kids, you know, never mind my poetry and my prose, you know. So last night I was working on, I was hoping to finish the, the fine details of a poem, but my son was ill, so we sat around having coffee and eating chocolate biscuits and things. But you know, no, I'm not a compartmentalizer really. But it's a different part of my brain that kind of, oh, brain, if that's the right word, body, nervous system, that kicks in when a poem is coming, than when a, a, a prose idea, as it were, uh -huh. a story or, or whatever it might be, comes. It's a different, it's a different way of, it kind of registers itself, it logs in in a different way, you know. And, 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 and what logs in first with poems usually is something to do with sound, to do with rhythm, or to do something to do with musicality, if you like. I mean, do you feel there's a bleed of ideas between the prose no. of the poetry? No, it's the same person writing, so the same person's, you know, preoccupations. But I hope not. I mean, I certainly, I've never had a thing People say, you know, do you ever have an idea and you think, is it a poem or is it a story or is it this? I've never had that because it's more to do with the, the organic nature of the piece rather than the idea. I mean, I, I've had ideas that were stories that I could have become a narrative poem if I'd wanted to, but it didn't feel like that. It felt like a, a story. Mm. Let's hear a bit from the collection. Okay. Um, this is how he stopped from talking about Charlottesville for the whole hour. Um, what did I say? Oh, yeah. So this book is called um, Still Life with Feeding Snake. And um, it's about being, is that being the kind of person, and I think any anybody who writes poetry will admit to this, maybe, and probably novelists too, is that everything is Chris to the mill. You know, if you, if you have a very good friend and they tell you a secret story that's totally confidential, and it sounds like a good short story, former friend, <laughs> buys the book later and says, shit, what's he done to me? Because you just can't help yourself. You just, you're a writer first. Um, but anyway, um, this, one of the poems is, is, is about as a reflection on um, how far does that go? And how far do you ignore the people around you in pursuit of your art? And, and the title poem, which is too long to read, but it's really about that. It's about, hey, all this stuff was going on while I was sitting in my study, scribbling, you know. Um, but this is about childhood, and um, it's about the way in which your parents betray you. Which they do. Happily. <laughs> Memories of a non-existent childhood. I could never believe in the dead. Only the blue of their houses the fabled blue of those who travel far into the rain and wish for nothing, least of all for home. For years I was lost in the details, heart like a flower tending towards the light, the fog of the cursive, the beauties of mistranslation. It snowed all night between the rooms we lived in and the rooms we could not find. Sometimes I laid my finger to the chill of it, that hollow in the wall that would not mend. 
Sometimes I sat for days in an upper room, waiting for the nuthatch to appear, the blue in the wing of it, blue as the virgin's shawl in a painting by Tintoretto. And sometimes, on those winter afternoons when everything fell still, I sat in the chair by the door and watched for the men in fifties raincoats, hats pulled down, and no need to show their credentials when they walked me out to the famous road bridge, first chill of dawn, a flight of gulls and terns crossing the bay, and someone on the far side, just like me but different, his name a crude translation of my own, his body darker. Sooner or later I knew we would be exchanged. Code names and shadows, gestures, a foreign tongue. Then I would cross the line and disappear. The way I had disappeared at first communion. Sweat on my hands and that starch white on my tongue. An incompleteness I would not refuse for pity's sake. My mother in her shawl, blue as the blue in a painting by Tintoretto, mouthing the password, happy to turn me in. Yes. Um, this poem is written, this poem, this is, this is, um, cliche central, this poem. I was in I was in Innsbruck, and if you're a writer in Innsbruck, the locals take you to a place called the Café Central, or also known as the Central Café. Um, and this is where all the writers who were, were in Innsbruck hung out, yeah, talking. Well, I don't know what they were like, but in my day they talk about their agents and how bad they are. But my agent's great, by the way, I have to say. But um, they used to hang out. Sorry, she's not here, is she? <laughs> anyway, um, they used to hang out there talking about art and literature and all that kind of stuff. And so we thought I should hang out there too. And I did, but the only thing I noticed about the place was that there was an extraordinarily beautiful, young, much younger than me, woman. And I was approaching my 60th birthday, but it's important. It's called, it's called approaching 60. And she came in and she had this beautiful hair. Oh, it's in the poem. And I, was, I, I always wanted to write a response to, to Yeats's late poems, you know, that kind of foul rag and bone shot brag and bone shop stuff saying, you know, okay you know, old guys latching after young women is really disgusting, I know that, yeah but, but you can at least sit back and appreciate the beauty, knowing that you're outside the game, you know hors de combat as it were, and just say she's beautiful and, and pay your respects from a distance that's all what happened but it became a poem in my head and I actually wrote it, this is the real cliche I wrote it on the back of the napkin thing that they give out <laughs> Oh dear. <coughs> Approaching 60, and, and the epigraph is from Yeats. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul, ragged bone shop of the heart. And I'm, I'm mistreating Yeats so much, slightly out of context in a way. In the central cafe in Innsbruck, a girl in a dark blue dress unlooses her hair from its clasp so it falls to her waist, then sits with her friends to coffee and sacher torte, turning her head just once to look at me, and all the while winding her hair in knots and raising it high so the nape of her neck is visible, slender and pale for moments, 
before the spill of light and russet falls down to her waist, falls back down to her waist across the dark blue fabric, while I try hard not to stare, a man growing old with a touch of sciatica, mild arthritis and hypertension, striving to seem a comfortable kind of scarecrow, not so blinded by desire as makes the heart a nest of rag and bone, and still, if she could see it, not quite foul, just one of those who knows what beauty is and lingers on the ache to stay alive. Wonderful. When I first read Still Life with Feeding Snake, one thing that immediately leapt out to me that it doesn't have what I always think of as the Burnside lacunae, that in some of your earlier poems they're very structured around gaps and oh, silences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But this seems much more flowing in its own way. Was that a deliberate decision to, no. to change the style? I don't do anything deliberately. <laughs> it's in, I, I, I sound flippant, but it's not. I mean, everything's entirely intuitive. I mean, okay, maybe not. I like to think of it as, as, I think many poets, certainly in my generation, are in search of a kind of spontaneity which is um, very elusive. It's like what jazz, jazz musicians or folk musicians do, where you come with a standard in your head, as it were, of what you would be doing in a poem, and it's not you're consciously modelling anything, you're just there in your head. And then you, you riff around it somehow or another, and then something comes out, out of that. Um, and. Um, you know, that's how it works for me. It's, it's, it's a spontaneous process. But it's, it's probably spontaneous in the way that, you know, when Hokusai was said, how do you paint bamboo? He said, well, you, you, you have to be spontaneous. So you study bamboo for 70 years <laughs> until you become bamboo, and then you go to work. And that's kind of how it is. I mean, because I think the poets that I most admire, I think, became the poets they are by reading Mm. intently and entering into these conversations with the dead and their fellow, but, but mostly with the dead um, and, and, and understanding the process, not understanding, that's the wrong word, you see, apprehending the process by watching it happen so many times and watching it fail. And, oh, I think that's how a lot of poets work. I mean, I know there are poets who sit down in, in libraries and get a stack of reference books and, and write poems with lots of difficult words in. I think, well, that's fine, but that's not how I work. I, I don't even usually, I, I compose a poem in my head, I don't write it down on paper until it's done, and, um, or parts of it are done, and then I write them down. But I usually do it on the hoof. I'm walking around or, you know, whatever. I was really glad you read that first poem because it has three features in it which occur again and again within the collection. Mm. First is the word blue, which seems to be almost talismanic throughout it. Mm. Um, referring to something which is both sort of griefful but also sublime. Um, do you see the themes yourself and start working them, or do they just, as it, again, is it just a sort of spontaneous No, they're, they're happening. They're ha I know they're happening. I mean, I, can't, I, I don't mess with them. But I remember my French translator, um, she, she, she's she was very good, and I read everything she sent me, and I had one, I forgot what the word was, but it was to do with a shade of blue. And I came back here saying, no, that's not the right word. I can't, what the right, I can't think what the right word is, but it's not that word. And she said, trust you, the one thing you argue about is a shade between grey and blue. That's why I live in five. What, what, do, you, what do you expect? <laughs> 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 we don't have any other colours. <laughs> <laughs> the 
There's gray, there's blue, there's dark blue, there's light gray, there's gunmetal gray, there's... Anyway, so um, we resolved it eventually, and um, she was the one who found the right word in French, after, I hasten to add. But, um, but yeah, but, but, but blue is, is, is a, it's not just that book, it's, it's a motif for me a lot. And of course, in, in, in the, the book two or three books ago, the one that ruined everything for me because it won two prizes and that's it for me, I'm over. Uh, um, but it was called Black Cat Bone. And of course it was referring to blues tradition and of course blue meant something in a somewhat different way. But blue has always been this um, two, uh, double-edged thing, if you like. Um, on the one hand, blue, what, 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 what the blues does is to take the most abject misery and transform it into something spiritually and... and, 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 and physiologically new, mm. you know. In that poem as well, you say blue as in Tintoretto. Yeah. And a lot of the poems are ecphrastic in that they're sort of taking works of art. Can you talk about your relationship with the, the pictorial arts and why they become such a spur to the poems? Yeah, that poem could only have been Tintoretto, of course, because it's a poem about Catholicism, and at least one level was a poem about Catholicism, and, and, and you, you, you scratch... You scratch a 12-year-old Catholic boy after the priest had been through with him, and he'll still be Catholic forever, but he'll also be a bit, a little bit of an art historian. Because inadvertently, as a Catholic child, you're exposed to all kinds of artistic imagery, you know, beautiful you know, Italian painting images. You know, well, they were in my day, maybe not so much now. Nowadays, they actually play the guitar and sing Kumbaya. I don't know, but in my day, you actually, you actually had the repetitions of Tintoretto thrust upon you. And I was very happy with that because I loved, I loved that. Uh, I actually wanted to be a painter. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm useless. I can't draw. And then I, I got really excited when I saw Cy Twombly and I thought, oh, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> little scroll here. But of course, Cy Twombly's a genius. And I did my little scrolls and scribbles and stuff and it just looked like somebody let a chicken loose. But Twombly's work is deeply moving. So why is that? I just been in the Munich and I was at the house where they keep the Trombleys there, and that series of paintings of boats, and they're, they're so powerful and so moving. And yet, if you're uninformed like I was when I started trying to copy him, you think, I can do that, just a bit of yellow there and a few black lines on it. See, this is the, the painter's eye. You have to read that poem by Frank O'Hara, of course. That's yeah. the one that tells you why poets and painters are different. And yet they were blood brothers at the same time. Finally, I mean, you've got the reference to the mother in it, and yeah. you've got the reference to some kind of double, um, yeah, yeah. a child who maybe told you it was stereotype yeah. central. Yeah, um, I found that quite strange because, given your memoir writing, you mm. did a lie around my father. You wrote about um, waking up in Toy Town, and you've mm. done the book about your obsession with a particular piece of music. But mothers and doubles have not really been in your memoiristic writing. Is poetry a way to access what you're thinking about the maternal side of your upbringing? No, nah, it's just I read too much Stevenson when I was young. <laughs> well, probably, that's about it. Um, doubles are, I mean, doubles are inevitable if you're Scottish, I think. Yes. You know, they're going to they're gonna find you and say, why aren't you writing about us? Um, but the mother, I, I still feel as though I haven't uh, addressed the mother theme yet in prose. I touched on it in, in, in um, I put a spell on you, and, and, I, and I remember my mother. Glancingly there, yes. Just glancingly. I don't, and I, maybe I didn't feel as ready, because I mean, my, right when my father just grew up, I was trying to heal a feeling of anger and hatred. 
towards both of us, towards him and my younger self. And my mother was a witness, a, a, a gentle witness to all this mess, deeply hurt by it all. But, you know, she, was, she wasn't in my field of vision in the same way. I, I don't know if it's to have looped back into Ashland and Void, where again we've got <laughs> a female figure who is helping in the process of, of healing. Uh, and the mother does seem like a much more healing figure in the poetry collection. Um, it just seems strange that there's these little filigree lines of connection, even if you uh, disavow them yourself. I don't see Jean as a mother figure, actually, but it's a strange thing. I, I see her as, an, as a kind of older sister uh -huh. who's lived through um, that worst thing in a way, um, well, one of the worst things for the outside, you know, famine and war, etc. She's lived through a, a whole period where she, her love can't be, she's, she's lesbian, um, and, and during the 40s, and, and her love can't be expressed, for the woman she loves, can't be expressed um, in, any, in any open way. I mean, obviously between those two in, in private, but the woman she's in love with um, wants the whole family and that kind of social acceptance type world, and so as many people did, she gets married. Um, to a man who's really a bad choice, but most men are. But um, most of us, I say. Most of us are. <laughs> um, she she has to do because she's a florist. She does the flowers for her, the woman she loves. She does the flowers for her wedding, and it's incredibly poignant scene. I'm glad it, I'm glad you said that because I was. I, I, it's so hard to judge how much you know icing you put on that cake, and I don't want people to feel it. But I don't want people to say I was. But anyway, she had to live through that. And I think that's why she's a healing, a healing figure. Not because she's a mother-like figure, but she's like an older sister who lived through a different history, who lived through the de deprivation of the essential part of her, herself, mm. and somehow came to terms with that. And, um, you know, I mean, and she still hurts. And at the end, of course, um, she, the one story she can't tell us is the full yeah. story of herself. It's, but, uh, it's very, uh, very deftly done the way that you oh, know, she constantly yeah. hints at one greater story and yeah. it never, we never quite yeah. get it. It's yeah. this beautiful act of deferral right the way through. They're both astonishing books, John, uh, and I really would like to open up to the audience to see if we have questions from them. Uh, there is a roving mic. Uh, There's here. There. Yep. I, uh, I wanted to take up where, where, where you probably left off, which was, you know, how much consciousness is there in the creation of even moments in any of your art? Um, and I remember, uh, uh, and I've been searching for it for a while, uh, there's a moment where Gene Culver and the narrator walk out and the turns and the prospects, what they're seeing in the future and what whether they shall turn back or whether seem to kind of mask a kind of oldish way of dealing with your own biography and and they turn back when they come across a, a building called Shelleyville yeah. and you have half a sentence about this was a um, utopian project, yeah. workers project of the 1890s um, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and of course, for me, I have to go, you know, onto the internet. Like, where, where am I going to find Shelleyville? And I never found it. No, it's a but I, 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 I sense in which those, those, those that larger history 
Uh, and can I say too, too, that I sort of think, well, you know, if you've got novels like A Little Life that don't sense the hist the irony of their title, <laughs> of course, the great long novels. Sorry, what are you saying about they, A Little Life? Uh, uh, well, it, they don't sense the irony of the, you said about people writing long novels um, yeah. and not creating had, a sense of history. I had to read that book, I think it was twice or three. Yeah, you were Donald Booker. I was, I was a Booker Prize judge, and A Little Life was a... Uh, so Annie's a fan, I'm sorry, but um, I had to read that book three times. Oh, I said to them, if I had to read this book again, I'm going to commit a super <laughs> seppuku outside the, the guild hall. Um, I, I'm sorry, I just didn't get that book at all, but anyway. Um, no, I have, to be, I have to be fair with, uh, I actually wrote more about that um, development. It's actually a place called Leclerc. Um, the, the buildings, many of the buildings still exist, but they're in private ownership now. Um, it's in the town called Edwardsville, which is just outside St. Louis. So if you ever want to know more, there's, a, there's certainly a book you can find about the project. And it was one of those, um, you know, um, what's the right word? Um, liberal, um, what's the right word is, for one of these industrialists who wanted to treat his workers with something like Philanthropic, yeah. Yeah, philo I don't like the word philanthropic because it sounds like, you know, He's actually a good guy. He, he, he was wanting to share a little bit more of, of what he got than, than other people did. And the, and the houses were beautifully designed. And, and they're very desirable. People want to live in them still. But I, I based that on... But I wanted to mention this. And that, that's where, if you were looking for... If Jean was looking for her ideal house, that's where she'd find it, in that kind of place. A place that was purpose-built for the workers of America who made America... Andrew Carnegie didn't make America. The miners made America. Frith didn't make America. The strike bakers didn't make America. The working people of America made America. The you know and and and, and I think that's that's one small way of emphasising that if you like. Strange that so many of those projects become really quite authoritarian. Something like Port Sunlight. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, or or that's why I don't believe in philanthropy yeah. so much. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen that Jonathan Mead's program about those. Yes. That's a brilliant show. If you get a chance to watch that, it's about these, um, you know, uh, utopian villages that these, these people brought people from London out to live in. And they were mostly like drunks and, and people on the street. And they brought them out there to rehabilitate them. But they could only rehabilitate in one way, which was a kind of puritanical Christian way, it seemed to be. You know, you couldn't be rehabilitated as a Buddhist who liked sex or anything like that. You know, you had to be puritanically Christian rehabilitated, which I think I'd rather be on the street myself. Can we have another question from the audience for John? Yep. Just. Uh, what's your sense of Scotland's future history? Future history? <laughs> That's an interesting question. That means now, right? <laughs> um, it's a very difficult question now. Um, when, the, when we were about to, when I was living in Germany when we had the referendum, um, I said publicly that I didn't, I thought that was a, a distraction from the real politics of this country. Um, and obviously I wasn't very popular in Scotland, so I was glad I was in Berlin at the time. Um, and then, of course, then we had Brexit, and I thought, oh, shit. If we, if we had won the referendum, we could have stayed in Europe and, 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 and maybe contributed to Europe in a way Britain never has, which is actually the idea of Europe. And I think what's wrong, what happened with Brexit, is, and I think especially, maybe especially <coughs> English sentiment, is um, if, you're in Euro if you're in Germany, if you're in France, the idea of Europe, the first part of that idea is Europe as a whole, 
that will somehow will avoid further conflicts, you know, because those people have had soldiers, well, you know, all the things that go along with soldiers, uh, occupying soldiers, that is, anyway. And Britain's never ex experienced that. We've never, we, last time we were invaded, I think, was 1066, was it? Not, maybe not Scotland. We've been invaded by the English several times, but, but you know, the British Isles by outside, you know, outside. And so we never had that thing of garrisons of, of soldiers who didn't speak our language, kind of, you know, using up all our resources and, you know, chasing our women around, as they say. But um, that's the idea of Europe that I was really interested in and, and was excited by. And, and, and I hate the corruption and I hate the lobbying and I particularly hate the way in which uh, the European Union has, has affected the environment well, across Europe, especially in Britain, because it empowers the worst kind of treatment in the land you can imagine, which we see every day now, and the way that farming is done here. But um, what happens to Scotland now? We, you know, what happens to Britain now as a whole will be part of that story as well, I guess. Could we say, okay, the, the, the English betrayed us with the, by leaving Europe. We want to go back to Europe, and therefore we need a new vote again. Will, if there's another referendum tomorrow, will, will, will there be a different outcome? I don't know. But I, I'm less interested in nations than I'm interested in regions. And um, as essentially an anarchist, I believe in, 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 in direct democracy. And I think the more regional we can get, um, the better. And uh, it's interesting to look at America. Who are the heroes now, unlikely heroes of American politics right now, mainstream politics? Not the president, not the senate, not the congress. The mayors of the big cities who are standing up against Trump. Who, you know, for example, for sanctuary cities. Trump wants to, you know, he wants to say that sanctuary cities are, are hotbeds of crime and evil because they're allowing people who, who haven't got papers to stay, but not hassling them. You know, and, and you know, at that level, people, touch, people start to think in a different way. At the local, more local level, they start thinking about, well, how things really affect me? Okay, we're, we're not shitting on somebody else's environment, it's my environment they're crapping on now. So do I want this, that, the next thing? You know? And, uh, you know, so I, I'd love to see Scotland secede, but I'd like to see Orkney secede from Scotland, and Glasgow and Edinburgh to secede from each other. I never play soccer with each other again. Football, I mean. That's why I started saying soccer when I was in Germany. Uh, but, um, you know, I'd like to see a, a big change in, in, uh, across the board uh, and have the kingdom of Fife be a kingdom of Fife again, you know. And we wouldn't let anybody else come there. And strangely, there's nobody wants to come anyway. <laughs> not a joke, but I think that I, I would like to see much more. I felt that the, during the referendum time, there was a certain sentimentality and a kind of Jacobean sensibility that was going on, which I didn't like. Um, and I wanted to see much more radical politics. And, I, and, and, and I, I couldn't get the adoration of Alex Salmon when he was screwing up my environment. And the Scottish na nationalists have not done anything different now with my environment. And I want to live here. I want birds to live here. I want to look out the window and see birds not incinerators or wind turbines, you know. Because John is so unprolific, he also has a small book uh, dealing with his <laughs> ecological concerns out as well. Havergay? Havergay, yes. Yeah, it's, it's the Icelandic word, for, it's almost the Icelandic word for nowhere. It's a corruption of the Icelandic word for nowhere. You can squeeze in one final question. Thank you, right at the back. See, this is a baseball game, and you can just throw it right in there, you should catch it. 
Like, where's, well, it's sort of hot dogs, you know. <laughs> Right, right. Um, yeah, I wanted to uh, come back to what you said about history and it's important to have uh, history and I wanted to ask you what history is alternatively to just another, as you said in your book, narrative or uh, one narrative getting yeah. put against another narrative. You know what I mean? What to you is history and what is the important... Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Um, and it's a big question and, and we'll just be in touch with it now. It's, obviously... A history would consist of a number of narratives, a, a wide variety of narratives, and at different times in, in history, history would be different narratives. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, history, when I was in Scotland, history that was taught to me was entirely Scottish history, and it was all, the whole thing seemed to consist of one woman putting her arm into the, um, into the thing where the, 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 the what's that, what was Catherine somebody? Catherine Douglas? She put her arm in and stopped the bad guys getting in. I can't remember who the bad guys were. But that was history. And I went to live in England. My parents made me go there. I didn't volunteer, believe me. Um, and, and then we did English history. And I thought, oh, that's even more dull. At least we hasn't even got the woman with the arm. I thought at least there was some glamour. But then I started reading other histories and, 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 and European history and stuff. And then you see different perspectives at different times. It's interesting to read a history book from the 1920s, say, from the 1960s. But what is very carefully cut out of history, taught history, acknowledged history, history that journalists will invoke, is the, the, the history of social justice politics, and to some extent environmental politics as well. And they have a system, I mean, it's a, a well-tried, it's a well-proven um, method. What happens is, if something new happens, it's interesting, first you mock it and, and deride it. You know, feminists burning their bras. Silly women, you know, burning their bras. And then you kind of acknowledge it a little bit grudgingly and say, well, some of these women are all right, actually. But these weirdo extremists, let's forget about them. But they don't go away, and eventually you have to say, and it goes on, and eventually you incorporate it into the society in some token form, right? And then you make it into a politically correct thing, so that that's the best way to subvert a good movement, is to actually adopt it immediately, make it politically correct. Then it goes on, I don't want to be bothered with that. You know, but feminism, environmentalism, um, all kinds of radical politics, the interesting people and the most interesting things that were going on are always erased, you know? They have Andrea Dworkin and they think, shit, we don't want her. Let's look around for Naomi Wolf. Let's find a Naomi Wolf. Oh, she's good. I like her. Naomi Wolf, over here you come. Get out, Andrea. You know, and, then, and then they've got something they can handle, they can deal with. Or environmentalists. And the most important environmentalist of that last, except for maybe Rachel Carson, of the last... 60, 100 years, is Ernanes. Why doesn't everyone even know his name the way they know the names of Al Gore, for God's sake? Why don't they know his name? Because he's actually genuinely radically environmental, you know, and, and he genuinely puts the earth first um, and in his writings and his philosophy. And so it's, it's this careful selection process so that you absorb so much. Bill Ayers has been absorbed from the weather underground. He's now a, a, a Chicago, he lives, he was a friend of Obama. Well, not a friend friend, but he was quite close to Obama. So you're const the, the, 
It's not the powers that be. There's not a committee sits in some room somewhere. It's the system itself that works in this way. It constantly filters and re renegotiates and selects and, and, and keeps rewriting the history that we get, always to remove the people who might move us to do something, you know? It is that thing that Guy Debord analysed so well in the Society of the Spectacle, that yeah. the, the spectacle always recuperates any radical action. Absolutely, It'll, yeah. it'll absorb yeah. it. I'm afraid we're actually out of time, but if you do have other questions for John, we'll be going to the signing tent. Please come and join us, and please join me in thanking him for what's been an absolutely thrilling hour. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.